from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to The Still D.C., a mini-series from Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS Insights, focused on how communicators distill complexity. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, a Managing Director at HPS. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Marne Banks. Marne is currently the Chief Communications Officer at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, whose aim is to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. Previously, she served as Communications Director for the senior U.S. Senator from Montana, John Tester, and started her career as a television reporter covering local news in Montana. Marne, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Good. So you grew up in Montana. You worked for uh, Senator Tester on outdoor issues, and now you head up communications for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, You clearly have a passion for the outdoors. Um, Can you talk about how that influenced your career? Yeah. Um, So as you mentioned, I grew up in Montana, which um, if you grow up sort of in the shadow of the Rocky Mountain front or even like a stone's throw away from the Missouri River, uh, the outdoors sort of just get into your bloodstream. And um, so growing up, I was always out. I had my parents lived right below this huge, um, this like massive uh, land of uh, South Hills. And we would run there as kids, bike back there, hike back there. And so, you know, I was doing that as a young child. And then my dad got me into fly fishing when I was young. And we would go and have uh, daddy-daughter trips um, fishing on the little Blackfoot River outside of my hometown. And so that just sort of was ingrained in me from a child. And then when I went to school, I went to the University of Montana in Missoula. And I spent my weekends backpacking and, like, hiking to hot springs. And then I became a reporter and really... That was um, when it sort of transitioned into like this thing I did on the weekends to something that I could see my career being in. And so, you know, I was covering wildfires. That's a big issue out West. And I was covering a lot of policy issues where you would see, you know, the tension between balancing natural resource development, Montana's, um, uh, you know, we've got the Bakken on the eastern part of the state. And so we were talking about oil and gas development, coal development, natural gas, and then also incredible wind power. And so we were talking about balancing that natural resource development with also the amazing opportunities that we had to hike and bike and hunt and fish and all of those things. So that sort of just became a part of um, my work as a reporter. And then when I went to work for Senator Tester on the Hill, it was something that he was really passionate about. I think the piece of legislation that really um, made me think that I might want to go into NGO work was the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act. We were working to withdraw mineral leases at the headwaters of the Yellowstone River, which is just right outside of Yellowstone National Park. And um, that was a really cool opportunity. We've organized a business coalition with hundreds of businesses right outside of Yellowstone breweries and, um, you know, mom and pop clothing stores and, um, you know, big uh, resort lodges that were all based on that tourism economy of the outdoors. And um, it was really pretty awesome. And then as soon as Senator Tester was reelected for his third term, I started to work for the TRCP and now it's, you know, what I do every day. So it sort of just started as a kid and then transformed over time. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome. Um, being outside is awesome. And your daddy daughter trips, my, my dad and sisters and I every year still go on a horse camping trip 
and it's oh, that's awesome special and yeah we actually um we were we are able to ride on sierra pacific industries land in california and so everyone comes every year someone comes and talks about like forest management and wildfires and um, habitat restoration and stuff and so anyways it's 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 really interesting how kind of the business and the environmental and all of this stuff um have to be balanced and so i i am sure that you had a lot uh to do in montana on that yeah well next uh family trip you have come out to montana we'll we'll put you on some horses and get you get you uh into the backcountry in the rockies yes i would love that <laughs> really um so politics and, and hunting and fishing and all of the things that you like to do are often considered kind of male dominated um, industries and hobbies. And can you talk about your experience establishing yourself um, as, a, as like a strong female leader in that context? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I never, I guess call me naive, but I never really viewed my gender as an obstacle until I was in my career. Like as a little girl, I never saw that as a, as a thing. And then I became a reporter and I quickly realized, wow, um, there are obstacles to, to being female and in a professional industry. Um, the Capitol Press Corps in Montana was made up of mostly men. And I remember press conferences where all the men would get called on by the elected officials to ask questions. And I was like, uh, I, I have a question and there was a mentor of mine, Chuck Johnson. He was an amazing reporter and he would always, he had been there for like, you know, several decades covering state politics. And he would, uh, oftentimes toss me a question. If he got caught, called on, he would say, I think actually I'm going to toss this one over to Marnay. And, you know, I think he, him creating space for me to be at the table was one of those really impactful moments because I realized that. I wanted to do the same thing for women um, as my career grew. And so, um, but there were, you know, I'm not going to lie. There were difficult moments along the way. I remember interviewing one elected official who uh, looked me up and down and asked me how much I weighed. And I was like, I, I, I don't understand why that's relevant at all. Um, another one, I think the, this, it's hilarious but also disgusting. He invited me to a hot tub party if I wanted to get a scoop on a story. And I was like, you know, this is just not how things should be done. And it was something that the, our male colleagues never had to deal with. Um, but I think what I learned through all of that is that you, you make space for yourself. And when people give you an opportunity or open a door for you, walk through it. And then it's your job as a woman to make sure there's seats at the table for other women. And, you know, in politics, as you know, change has been slow, but like 26% of members of Congress are female now, and we have more work to do. But when we think about the hunting and angling space, it's even, it's even slower. Only 6% of hunters are women and 12% of fishermen are women. And so, um, we have a lot of work to do in this space and, um, it's something that I think is really important. I agree. Um, I want to ask you about the conservation priorities and, and how do you get people over this hurdle of, of either interest in hunting and fishing, um, or, getting excited and interested in the priorities of conservation? Like what are your challenges there? 
Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what we saw with the COVID pandemic is so many people connected, use nature to connect um, and to get a release because they just couldn't um, be anywhere else. And so outdoors were a safe place. We saw, um, we've seen hunting and fishing both increase during the COVID pandemic and outdoor recreation use has gone up dramatically. Um, There's some of the industries also that had, you know, record sales. Um, we've seen a backlog on ammunition sales. We've seen, um, and we've seen fishing sales spike as well. And so I think what we see is we have a moment right now where people are very connected to nature. And, um, you know, the question is, what are we going to do with that when everyone gets back to their busy lives, when they're back in their offices, are they going to stay connected to nature like they have been for the past year? And as a conservation organization, it's our job to make sure that we're turning those users into conservationists, that we're educating them about how that their gear and license purchases actually fund habitat. Um, you know, hunting and hunters and anglers are the only outdoor recreation users that pay excise taxes to use the landscape. Um, Their gear and license purchases fund uh, habitat conservation, clean water conservation projects all across the country. But when you go backpacking or camping, you're not paying those user fees, but there are license fees and uh, associated with hunting and fishing. And so taking those moments, making sure we're turning uh, users of the landscape into conservationists because um, you know, they're, you're getting something when you use the landscape. So let's give back. Yeah, that's such an important point. I didn't know that about backpackers and hikers, and I'm guessing uh, horseback riders as well, probably don't have to um, pay those fees. That's interesting. Um, I want to go back to your time as a journalist. Um, sounds very interesting, some of your <laughs> stories and unfortunate. Being on both sides, having been the one asking the questions and also the one answering the questions, how did your time as a journalist um, influence your approach to being the chief communicator for both a senator and now for the partnership? Yeah, as a journalist, um, you know, I just have such great respect for the profession and um, and our First Amendment rights. The freedom of the press is something really important. I think holding our elected leaders and policymakers accountable is really important. And so that deep respect for the profession really did shape the way um, that I interact with the media in my roles with Senator Tester and at the TRCP. And I think um, the, the oftentimes as communicators, our interests are different than journalists. And we just admit that we are starting from a different place. We have something we are trying to proactively communicate and they're approaching it from a very different perspective as a journalist. And so respecting that relationship, understanding it um, and treating the relationship not as adversarial, but um, as just an understanding that we're coming at it from two different places. I also think that, um, you know, oftentimes people in a communications role whether it's PR or a public information officer or marketing, um, don't understand the pressures that are going on in journalists' everyday lives. As a you know, beat reporter in a small town, there were days where I was cranking out four or five stories in one day. And so the pressures to fill a newscast or to fill a paper are very real. And 
um, they're busy. They don't have a lot of time and we need to make sure as communicators, we're giving them things buttoned up tight. We're communicating succinctly and we're respectful of their time and their limited resources, especially as newsrooms continue to shrink. But I think that those relationships Um, There's always going to be tension there and that's okay, but just acknowledging that it exists and that, um, that I think produces better results. Thank you for that. Going back a little bit to kind of the, the tension between DC and Montana, um, you obviously as the communications director for Senator Tester um, needed to communicate things to your constituents in Montana about the decisions you were making in DC and also um, help the senator communicate the the views and um, and sort of lifestyle of Montana to people in DC who maybe are unfamiliar with it. So, can you talk about maybe a specific challenge you faced um, that sticks out in your mind and and how you addressed it? Yeah, I think probably one of the more complicated ones was. Um, when Senator Tester was working on the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, and that was the longest bill name in the history of bill names, but it was, uh, people also like to, uh, Elizabeth Warren would have called it Dodd-Frank rollback. (laughs) So um, it was a complicated piece of legislation. Senator Tester was very passionate about community banks. He grew up in a small town. He cared about right-sizing regulations for community banks and Main Street. And so this was one of these things that he was very passionate about. But when you went back home in Montana, it tends to be a little bit more libertarian. Um, It's not necessarily a red state. It's, um, and, and so they like to, you know, take fights to big corporations and the man and the system And so explaining a piece of legislation that was reducing regulations on uh, what was perceived to be big banks um, was a really complicated thing to explain to Montanans. But it wasn't. It wasn't a bailout for Wall Street. It wasn't. It was relief for Main Street and community banks. And so we spent a lot of time trying to communicate that back home um, and I won't say that it was always successful. It was one of those pieces of legislation that, you know, you, you message for, um, and you insulate against the incoming attacks against you. Um, but in the end, the fact was, is we had support for the legislation. It was hugely bipartisan and, um, you know, it's one of our more proud, my more proud moments on the Hill, because I think it it really did benefit rural America. Well, good. Awesome. So how, when you're thinking about that, is there kind of a tool or a tactic, and we're going to get into this in kind of the next section in terms of, you know, your advice to other communicators, but in this in particular, um, it's complex, it's deep financial services, it's, and it goes against the grain of some of the views of, of your constituents. So it, was there a, a way that you approached messaging it or a tool that you think is really important when you're trying to communicate something that complex? I think the most effective thing that we did was build a coalition. Um, We had businesses, we had small town lenders talking about these issues. And so using those surrogates, using those people who are tied to their community, who, you know, Jill, when she walks in the grocery store, she knows her local banker. She trusts them. She's got 
you know, her car loan, her mortgage. She probably even talked to them about how she was going to pay for her college, her kids' college education. And so when those people were spokespeople for us, it lended so much credibility to what we were doing because they were saying, this is going to help us, which in turn help, helps you and your personal financial situation. And the coalition of businesses and small town bankers um, that were able to speak out for the legislation made it incredibly effective and I think insulated it against some of the attacks that were coming, um, you know, from the other side. Yeah, that's that's really great advice. Validators are incredibly important. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll tackle Marnay's advice to other communicators. Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS, is an analytical public affairs consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., New York, and California. HPS uses substantive analysis to understand complex topics and create public affairs tools to explain issues to target audiences and reach critical stakeholders. We achieve our clients' goals by enhancing understanding of issues, products, and companies, and ultimately improving outcomes. Learn more at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. We're back on Distilled DC, a mini-series from HPS Insights on communicating complexity. I'm here with Marnay Banks, Chief Communications Officer at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, and we're about to get her advice on how to be a more effective communicator. So Marnay, if you had to isolate one skill that makes someone a great communicator, what would it be? Organization of information. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) I like it. I feel like it's most people always say repetition and I was like, I'm not going to say repetition, but, um, I think that so often people don't know how to organize their thoughts. And so the train between like making your thesis and the explanation of why it all gets mumbled together. And so the need to put it in an organized fashion, this also might be because I'm like totally type a and have, you know, a notebook full of random, you know, to-do lists organized by type. And so, um, organization is my jam, but I think that that's, um, probably what has helped me the most. Yeah. I love, I love that advice. And I feel like in my career, I've, I've tried to adopt things that I've seen other people doing that I have thought were really effective. And one of the most effective things that I've seen is just people who are able to say, look, I think that there are three things we need to think about here. One, two, three. And, yes. um, and then like the idea of understanding your audience to know whether you need to go indirect communication or direct communication. And so I am totally on board with the organization of information. I think that is a really great piece of advice. Um, okay, next piece of advice. What is one piece of wisdom you wish you had when you started in your career that you would want to pass on to others? Um, I think it's getting creative about how you advance your career. When I was early on as a reporter, I knew that I wanted to be covering politics and that position didn't exist. And so I, I was having to cover politics and wildfires and the bear stuck in the tree and the, you know, the city commission meeting. And I was like, how do I get the job where I'm just doing politics? And I ended up, I, you know, drawing this Venn diagram of what I wanted to do and what my company needed. And I was like, where do these align? And that sweet spot in the middle, that's where I went. And I was like, okay, these are the three things in that Venn diagram that 
you know, where I want to do something and the company needs something. And then I just went to my boss and I was like, this position doesn't exist. And this is why you need it. And, um, I think if you can figure out what it is your company needs or your future employer needs and make a pitch for why you're right for that and why they should make an investment, um, you can be really successful. Yes. I love that. And way to lean in and, (laughs) you know, chart your own course. I think that's really awesome. Um, and question, a bear stuck in trees, like, can they knock it out (laughs) once they climb up? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's, it is. We had a black bear, um, stuck in a tree in Montana. And I mean, you see this in the movies, but it actually happened. And, um, they had to call the local fish and game and they had to, uh, tranquilize dart, shoot a (laughs) tranquilizer dart. And they actually do catch it on a a trampoline. And so I was there with my camera videotaping it. And then, you know, it's sleeping for a while and they put it in a cage. It was one of the coolest experiences because the cage is open and it's just laying there asleep. And I got to see like it up close, its nose and its mouth and its teeth and its huge paws. It was pretty wild. That is really cool. And maybe this is the most interesting anecdote that we've, we've got today. (laughs) This is fantastic. Um, All right. So back to hunting and fishing. So what is your preferred um, between the two and how often do you get to do it? Yes, absolutely. Fly fishing. I am, I grew up fishing with my dad and I'm actually on the board of Fly Fishers International, which if you're not a fly fisherman or fly fisher woman, you should go to Fly Fishers International and check it out. They have education courses teaching you how to cast and tie flies. And um, so it's a great opportunity to get into the sport. Um, but I, I just started hunting. I went to Hunter's Ed two years ago when I started working at the TRCP. I wasn't a hunter prior. And um, so I went duck hunting in Colorado uh, pre-pandemic. Didn't end up shooting anything, which was a bummer. But it was um, certainly an experience. Sitting in a duck blind at like four in the morning waiting for the sun to rise is a wild experience. Um but yes, fly fishing is my passion and, um, you know, river runs through it based in Montana. My dad's a preacher. So it, I like my whole life is river runs through it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so when you're in DC and during the pandemic, I mean, you talked about how there's just been such an increase in, in people engaged in outdoor activities, which I think is amazing. Um, you know, we, we had our first daughter about a year ago, and I was like, we're going to be the family. We're going to be hiking all the time. We're going to be the most outdoorsy family ever. And I think the pandemic actually forced us to follow through on that. And we've discovered all kinds of great hikes in the local neighborhood. We did a cross-country trip last August where we went to, you know, I think like six or seven national parks. Like it was really this amazing, amazing thing. Um, you know, but, but for people who are here in DC and I mean, like at the end of the tunnel, but pandemic's ongoing and it's spring, is there any really great outdoor activities you recommend, um, for people in the area? Yes. Yes. Also national park trips, best. That sounds so much fun. Um, and kudos to you for getting your uh, kid involved in the outdoors at a young age. It 
definitely makes a difference. Um, so DC area, uh, Schaefer Farms Mountain Bike Trail near Darnstown, Maryland. It's 11 miles of single track. It's so fun. Um, different expertise levels. You can go in as a beginner or there's a, some stuff that's a little more technical. Um, and the best part is, is at the end of the day, when you're done riding, you can head over to Windridge Vineyard and have a glass of wine. <laughs> I mean, what a reward. I like yeah. it. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. So we actually, um, George Washington National Forest um, in Virginia, it's like kind of, kind of connected to Shenandoah, but not really. There's beautiful hiking there and um, just way fewer people. I'd, we found like over the course of the summer and fall. Um, so that was kind of our little discovery um, around here, which was fun. That's awesome. Uh, okay. Last question, because it's Women's History Month. And um, I'd be curious uh, if there is a woman you most admire and what you learned from her. So I have to say Jeanette Rankin, because she was the first woman elected to Congress and she's from Montana. She was elected in 1916. And notably, she was one of the members who voted uh, against World War One. And um, she was a pacifist. Um, and then she was elected again to Congress right before World War Two and voted against. She was the only member at that time to vote against World War II. Um, she sort of charted her course. The unfortunate thing is that Montana has not yet elected a second woman to Congress. So since Jeanette Rankin's time, Montana has some work to do to get a woman in Congress. But Jeanette Rankin um, is, is probably the, the Montana hero. Okay, that's a good one. Well, thank you so much, Marnay. This was really fun. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Distill DC, a mini series from HPS Insights. Special thanks to our guest, Marnay Banks, Chief Communications Officer at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Distill DC will be taking a break for the rest of the spring and continue with new episodes early this summer. You can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies' work and our podcast at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insights. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at hamiltonplacestrategies.com.